The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Biondi didn't think that the I-5 killer was a rapist who happened to be killing, or even a killer who happened to be raping. He exhibited signs of a true serial killer. His motive was no doubt psychological, with his perverted acts having meaning to only him. At the scene of any serial killing where the victim has been raped, it would be correct to say the motive was sexual assault. But it usually went deeper than that. What was the killer actually accomplishing in acting out his fantasy? Almost always it came down to power and control. From Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club, Episode 28, Hunting the Hunter. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm your host, Jill, and for those of you tuning in, I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years of experience as a psychology educator. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share the stories with you. Each month or so, I will discuss a book that I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. Now, this is the second, so definitely listen to episode 27 before you listen to this one. I like to follow the steps of the author to give you the story from his or her point of view. In the third episode of the trilogy, called Second Cast, I will delve into the paths not taken, add analysis, related materials, updates to the cases that fascinate and complete the story. These episodes tend to have a surprising quality to them, enabling me to bring some interesting subjects into play. A quick shout-out to my murder bookies in the UK. United Kingdom supporters, you have been so wonderful, and I wanted you to know that I noticed. A humble and sincere thank you. Now, one quick tidbit before we get into the story. little public service announcement. I just had a malignant melanoma removed from my back, and that is skin cancer. It was stage 1A, so it was caught very, very early, and everything indicates that I should be absolutely fine. It will require monitoring every three months for a year, and then every six months, and then every year after that. I was so lucky. Murder bookies. Melanoma is deadly. I went to the dermatologist because I had a wart, and that wart saved my life. So make sure that you see your dermatologist yearly. Just add it to your list of must-dos. COVID has kept us locked down and indoor for many, many months, and many of us put dentists and unnecessary doctor's appointments on hold. Well, it is time to get them back on the calendar, and I really think strongly about it. And I am fine. I have a sore back. I have a hole in my back, but I really am fine. Alrighty, now, that last episode... 
Oh my God, what a story. Well, in that episode, you met a number of law enforcement personnel from several California County Sheriff Departments, and they come to realize that they have a serial killer murdering young women across their jurisdictions deliberately, given the similarity of the cases, time factors, geographic proximity to the I-5 highway, cause of death, which is strangulation, and this ritual of non-functional cutting of clothing of the victims. That is, it has no real actual purpose in committing the crime itself. This is a highly deviant and unique behavior, and it reveals a psychological need in the killer, and has its origins in his childhood. Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Chabra, Laura Hedrick, and they suspect Karen Finch all perished at the sadistic killer's hands, leaving grieving family, friends, all of them were left behind. California DOJ criminologist Jim Streeter received the evidence on Karen Finch's case about two weeks after her body was discovered halfway down a ravine with her throat cut. Her tank top was sliced down the front with additional slits that served no purpose, this non-functional cutting, coming off the center and under her left arm towards the bottom. The left shoulder was almost cut through, but not quite. The blue shorts and pink panties had identical patterns, indicating the victim had been wearing them when they were cut through the front, beginning on the left side seam and running across the crotch down to the hem of the right leg. The shorts, splattered with blood, were found lying on the road. This act of cutting is so significant psychologically to the killer that he carries scissors to the crime scene, repeating this ritual over and over again during each crime. No sperm was detected in the rape kit that had been conducted on Karen's bench. However, Streeter knew that it wasn't all that uncommon for trained criminalists to find sperm after the pathologist hadn't. He used a Christmas tree stain, called this because the heads of sperm turned red and the tails turned green. When Streeter examined two slides marked cervical, they lit up in a brilliant green-red mosaic. Bingo! No fingerprints were found on the duct tape that was left in the victim's hair, however. All right, this guy is good. He's leaving next to zero evidence behind. Always, Streeter comes back to the cutting. This time, there was significantly more than had occurred with Stephanie Brown or Charmaine Sabraw. The cuts that go nowhere, up, down, sideways, backwards. Was he escalating? Ray Biondi understood that it was unlikely they'd ever know or understand why a serial killer engaged in such horrific behavior. It always came down to power and control. With the crime committed by unremarkable people who were powerless in their everyday lives, or so their internal mental dialogue repeated to them over and over. The murders and rituals were the way the killer projected his power over his victims, momentarily feeling superior to someone, likely the only time in their sorry-ass lives this happened. And beyond he didn't really care, he just wanted to catch the bad guy, motive be damned. More important to Biondi was getting the evidence that linked the guy to the murders, tiny step at a time, bit by bit. Newsflash! Kay Malsby was finally a homicide detective. And it was not at all what she expected. She and the three other detectives were temporarily assigned to the I-5 investigation with no desks, 
No phones, no office space, no cars. So she borrowed a car from Vice, where she had been previously assigned. Then, the four new homicide detectives converted a storage room into a workspace, still mostly filled with case file boxes. They squeezed in a conference table, a few new chairs, and two old metal desks. Hey, they did have a window. Malsby pinned a map to the wall that identified abduction locations and body dumps, and then they began to read the case files. She had never been happier in their, quote, not hardly an investigation war room closet, unquote. She was paired up with Joe Dean, a 40-year-old sergeant from the jail division, who tended to see the world as black and white. Maltby wanted to look into James Driggins, the boyfriend of murder victim Laura Hedrick. While the police had confirmed that he'd made collect phone calls to his mother, there were also other calls he charged to Rita Driggins the night Laura disappeared and had been killed. Who else had he called and why? Beyond, he said, if Driggins needed to be worked, then do it. Go solve the case and ignore jurisdictional issues. Just work the case. Did I mention that I love Ray Biondi? He is just freaking awesome. Reinterviewing Driggins, who was in jail, did little to clarify matters. While he insisted he had nothing to hide, he was too tired from working out to speak to them now. He'd talk to Kate tomorrow. The next day, he decides that he doesn't really want to be interviewed. They finally got information from the phone company. And the mystery number came from a house of dopers. One of them knew James Driggins. None of them knew Laura Hedrick. Not deterred, she and Dean dug into the case, clearing up a number of loose ends and suspects. Meanwhile, the other temporary detectives, Gary Gristmacher and Tom Carter, investigated those at the top of the DOJ tip list, that is the priority ones. In San Joaquin County, Two security guards had seen a man in a blue Nissan 4x4 attempting to dispose of what looked like a body. Gee, that might catch your attention, right? So when spotted by the guards, the suspicious load went back into the truck and poof, gone. While this was close enough to the I-5 that it had to be investigated. I mean, that is weird, right? So Grismacher and Carter got a printout of all the Nissan 4x4s, all 3,600 of them. So they decided to focus on those registered in the San Joaquin County, which cut the list down to a few hundred. Day after day, they tracked down each Nissan, checking the color first, blue only, and then looked for the special features that the guards had noted, a chrome roll bar and a roll of lights above the cab. Weeks and a zillion man-hours later, this lead did not pan out, but these are the actual joys of investigation. This wasn't the only red herring, but this is how these investigations actually work. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Ray Biondi was having to justify how he was using his four new detectives in this new special task force to the higher-ups. Translation, quote, get your butt up here and tell us why you still need the extra bodies, end quote, which is how Bruce Henderson described it. Biondi was asked how long it's going to take him to clear up these cases as the boss sat looking at him waiting for an answer. Dumbstruck, Biondi was amazed that I'd asked him for total swag. Some wild-ass guess. I mean, unforeseen variables would inevitably impact the investigation. 
Like, was the killer even on the suspect list at all? New leads could surface. So, dodging landmines beyond the answered, laying out his case to keep the four detectives indefinitely, and he was still hoping for an interagency task force. Henderson wrote that a chief deputy countered with, quote, My biggest concern is that this is summer and we need these people back for vacation relief in their respective bureaus, end quote. Biondi didn't dare respond because he couldn't be certain of what might come out if he opened his mouth. Yes, you heard me correctly, murder bookies. A serial killer is murdering women, and this chief deputy's biggest concern is staffing the vacation roster. All right, I was saved from having an anxiety attack reading this because, thankfully, Sheriff Craig chastised this moron for having the wrong priorities. He said, quote, Vacation relief is not our biggest concern. Our priority is to solve these murders. Craig also had a daughter who frequently drives on the I-5, so he was actually concerned about what's going on, not vacation relief. Oof. So Biondi is promised that he could keep the four detectives for as long as possible. All right, how do these guys get promoted to deputy chief? I have to assume they test well and they speak the bullshit. That's, that's all I could come up with. However hopeful that there would be a multi-agency task force, what Biondi envisioned would have four to six detectives on loan from the involved departments with one manager in charge, and they'd have all the necessary logistical support, both lab and clerical. He believed that a small, focused group would be more productive than independent agencies all doing their own investigations, which makes complete sense to me. Biondi also wanted another press conference to regenerate public interest and support. Joaquin had three detectives, including Vito Bertaccini and Pete Rosenquist, working on the I-5 case full-time, but they nixed the task force concept. Modesto PD declined because they didn't have any I-5 cases. But wait, didn't Laura Hedick disappear off the streets in Modesto? Little denial there, Modesto. El Dorado County Sheriff Department had reported that one of their Jane Doe's might be tied to the I-5 cluster. She was likely in her 20s, 5'3", long brown hair, found nude from the waist up, and had been dead approximately six months when found in a ravine off Highway 50, a well-traveled route to Lake Tahoe. While wanting the DOJ's help identifying her, they were not interested in the task force. The DOJ was willing to do everything except lead such a task force. It would act as a clearinghouse for all information sent in by the departments and would provide laboratory support. Biondi banged his head on the desk as ego and politics derailed good law enforcement again. And his day got worse. He was about to lose two of his detectives, Gritzmacher and Carter. Gritzmacher went back to narcotics. Carter went to the jail division. For what reason? Vacation relief. So they did it after all. I cannot even believe it. You've got to be kidding me. It is just unbelievable. September 14th, 1987. Deborah Ann Guffey, a willowy blonde who had just celebrated her birthday two days earlier, stood on the corner in San Fermento, working to attract male attention as they drove by. While she had a trick pad at the Ritz Hotel, business had been slow this week. She had the sweats, 
Her legs ached, and she did not have the cash to buy the heroin that kept her going. Just after midnight, a light-colored compact car pulled over. Inside, a middle-aged male driver inquired if she wanted to date. She said yes, and he knew a place where they could park up the road. Getting into the car, they drove down Auburn Boulevard over the freeway, and while she was friendly chatting too much from withdrawal, he was silent until they entered a dark golf course and parked. He asked her if she'd pose for him as he was into photography. Well, it all depends on how much, Deborah asked. Fifteen hundred dollars. Deborah nearly laughed out loud. Fifteen hundred dollars to photograph what she gave away for fifty dollars every night? Right. And she'd be the Playboy centerfold of the year. Calling his bluff, Deborah wanted the fifty dollars up front, but he only had twenty-five. They haggled over price, but the truth was she needed a fix. When she went to adjust the car's seat, he reached and twisted her arm painfully as she heard a simultaneous metal click, which scared her as much as the sudden burst of pain. No, she shouted, jerking back with enough strength to break his grip, catching the sight of handcuffs as she grabbed for the door handle. Locked. He grabbed a handful of her hair, slamming her face into his lap, where she smelled urine and stale sweat. Begging him not to hurt her, Deborah promised she'd do anything he asked. He'd been so timid before, maybe he could be reasoned with, she thought. Don't struggle, you won't get hurt, cunt. An icy chill flooded Deborah. This voice was mean, cold, all business, totally different from before. If she stayed here, she'd get hurt really bad, and she exploded with adrenaline and rage, screaming, flailing legs, arms, squirming, jerking wildly as she clawed the lock on the door and pulled the lever. He yanked her hair, pain exploding, but she didn't care. Out the door went her feet, her legs, and with sheer will and determination, the rest of her went out too, though he held onto her hair and her screams echoed in the night. Sacramento Police Officer Sergeant Charles Kofeld patrolled through the back parking area of the Haggins Oaks Golf Course. He went down a narrow alley, navigating around the metal buildings, and then stepped on it, heading into the front lot as he was now suddenly investigating loud screaming. Spied a light-colored four-door car, passenger door open, body half in and out. A woman was struggling to pull herself out. A man behind the wheel was trying to get her inside, and the screaming continued. Kofeld flipped on his high beams, lighting up the car. The man had her by her long, blonde hair. Suddenly, she was out of the car, the momentum carrying her several feet away. The white car sped away, passenger door opened. Kofeld stopped and checked on the hysterical woman. He tried to handcuff me. He's crazy. Get that sicko. He would have killed me, wrote Henderson in transcribing Deborah Ink's words to the sergeant. Meanwhile, the speeding driver had headed into the back of the parking lot where there was no exit. Realizing his mistake, he made a U-turn, speeding up. The chase was on as the car headed towards the freeway. Car chases on! Flashing lights on, Kofelt pulled right behind the fleeing John and pulled over to the side. Kofelt shone the spotlight on the white Hyundai. Calling in the stop, he decided to conduct a high-risk vehicle stop because this guy had fled for some reason. He pulled his service revolver, aimed it at the car, and waited for backup. Two sheriff patrol cars arrived first, positioning themselves so Kofelt wasn't silhouetted. 
yet they each had a line of fire that left the Sacramento officers in the safe zone. In this case, it was standard procedure for the officer initiating the stop, regardless of rank, to command the situation. Over the loudspeaker, the driver was ordered to turn off the engine and throw out the keys to keep his hands visible in the window. The driver obeyed. Next, he was told to open the door while keeping his hands visible and to walk up the street about five feet. Now, get down on your knees and lie on your stomach, hands extended out to the sides of your body, commanded Kofeld. As Kofeld moved towards the driver, he felt the trunk of the car for any vibration or movement inside. Handcuffing the suspect, he was patted down as the other patrol officers arrived. The middle-aged man with graying hair said nothing, staring at the ground. As they secured the suspect and his car, Kofeld turned to see the young woman from the parking lot. She followed the flashing lights. I was afraid to be alone back there, said Deborah Ann Guffley simply. She told Officer Kofeld how he grabbed her and then he tried to handcuff her. He had. The search for the handcuffs began. Nashville, Tennessee. Lieutenant Ray Biondi stood at the podium of the National Conference on Serial Killing, explaining the I-5 investigation thus far to 200 homicide detectives from 35 states. He showed the computerized suspect list generated by the DOJ using the point system that they had developed to organize the now thousands of tips that had come in. He presented on the first day of the conference, attending many other sessions, all focused on serial murder. Nowhere in the country had there been another case with the non-functional cutting signature of the I-5 killer. Jim Streeter received a call from the El Dorado County Sheriff's Department, South Lake Tahoe Substation. They needed help with the unidentified naked female homicide victim who had been found off a closed service road near Highway 50. Streeter noticed that she had obviously been strangled as the ligature remained around her throat. Her clothes had been collected and placed in plastic evidence bags. Keeping them inside to preserve any trace evidence, Streeter looked at them, hoping it wasn't what he expected to see. His goosebumps had goosebumps. Heard of the I-5 series? He asked the El Dorado detectives. As Streeter examined Jane Doe, he used what was basically a fancy blacklight to find any unseen objects. He found fibers which showed up in varying fluorescent colors and whitish stains which could have been semen but proved not to be. He asked the mortician to swab them and to look at her wrists for hair loss, which would indicate tape having been used on them. He also explained the need for her entire head of hair to be collected so he could examine it for traces of duct tape as well as her hands so he could deliver them to the latent fingerprint section. Eyebrows shot up. Streeter sighed. Quote, Some items may have palm prints, so I need a full set for elimination purposes, and an x-ray may help identify her. End quote. Streeter noted that four fingers on her right hand were missing the last joint and had no fingernails. An x-ray would determine if this was post-mortem animal activity or a birth defect. Then Streeter called Biondi with grave news. Ray, her clothes were cut. Kay Malsby arrived for the Jane Doe autopsy at the South Lake Tahoe Mortuary. Partner Joe Dean headed to the crime scene while the daylight remained. 
K. Mosby would forevermore recall the stench of decomposition from her first autopsy, the bane of all homicide detectives. The ligature around her neck was a strip taken from her black chiffon jacket and wrapped around a section of tree branch. A garrote, this enabled her killer to twist the stick, tightening so she would black out, and then releasing the pressure to bring her back. Aghast, Malsby realized the killer had toyed with her. Clearly, the cause of death was ligature compression of the neck. The victim had been gagged with her pantyhose, a portion of nylon stuffed into her mouth. When it was untied, it left a deep furrow in her skin. It wasn't possible to check for rape, as insects had done their work on her corpse. Scrapings were taken from under her fingernails, however. She had a subdural hematoma, about 3 inches or 7.6 centimeters in diameter, indicating she'd been struck hard, possibly rendering her unconscious. As requested, what remained of her scalp was preserved, as well as her hands, jaws, and teeth. Henderson writes that Joe Dean caught up with Kay, informing her that their latest Jane Doe had been found in a thickly forested area off the road down the hill from a gate. White evidence cards marked the trail the killer and victim had taken, identifying discarded clothing and pieces of white cord. He'd likely taken her down alive, as it was too far to carry a body, either undressing as they went or he'd thrown about her clothes on leaving. Also found near the body were Newport cigarettes, a white lighter, and two condom packets, one packet opened but not used. Later that week, Malsby saw Streeter still working on the Jane Doe evidence and was taking tape lifts off her jacket, which had been cut into four sections. Holding scotch tape between his fingers, Jim tapped the fabric and then held it above a petri dish pressing the end of the tape down the sides and then placing the lid cover over the dish. Later, he'd examine the findings under a microscope. Every square inch of each garment was methodically covered with tape lifts, inch by inch. Pausing, Streeter introduced Kay to his mannequin, who was wearing the damaged garments that had been Jane Doe's. He pointed out the non-functional cutting to Kay, which had not assisted in removing her dress and had not allowed access to her body. He did the same with her pantyhose, cut into five pieces, which was now in an evidence bag. Quote, This section here, this is a foot and part of a leg that was used as a gag. They look clean cut to me, not ripped or torn. She was wearing them when they were cut, end quote, as he told Malsby. How did Streeter know this? No fecal matter was in them or in her pants, but had been found at the crime scene. In Jim Streeter's expert opinion, the pantyhose were cut in the same fashion that Charmaine Sabra's had been cut. He took Kay to the three pieces of white cord, measuring between 17 to 23 inches, which is about 43 to 58 centimeters, which had no stains or marks on them. He'd finally left something at the crime scene. Kay asked if there had been any luck in identifying her. No, not yet, Streeter remarked but the missing fingers were a birth defect. Maybe that will help. Judy Frankenpole feared the worst. Her 17-year-old daughter, Darcy, hadn't called home. It wasn't exactly unusual, as she'd become a chronic runaway. However, her incommunicado hadn't lasted this long before. 
Judy was 40, had a good job, and rented a home in the middle-class suburb of Seattle, and had a daughter and son. Divorced for 13 years, her ex wasn't the perfect dad, but he'd been around until his death from cancer eight years earlier. Judy had actually taken him in and nursed him those last few months. Losing her dad had hit nine-year-old Darcy really hard. A big personality in third grade, Darcy had had to use the bathroom and walk to the house next on the block, knock on the door, and just ask to use it. Now, she hadn't known the people living there. She just walked up and asked to use their bathroom. Yet, Judy had worried about a child who would do that. At age 14, mother and child began to argue, and that often characterizes those teen years. Darcy's anger at her dad dying and leaving her periodically erupted. The family went into counseling, but that really hadn't seemed to help, as she began cutting school and running away. By 16, Darcy was living on the streets and had become involved in sex work. Judy did not understand it. Darcy wasn't a drug addict. She just didn't belong out here. Why was she doing it? Judy had done everything she could think of to help, but now she was at a loss. Yet one thing, Darcy always called home regularly, at least every two weeks. August 23, 1987 was her last call from Sacramento. She and her pimp boyfriend, James Brown, were planning to go to Disneyland and then Texas. A month earlier, Darcy had been put on a bus by the San Francisco PD after a prostitution bust. She stayed with her mom and her brother, Larry, for his 15th birthday, but left again with James, who was now in jail. Darcy confessed to Larry that she really didn't want to go to California, but she was afraid of what James would do if she didn't. Six days after Darcy's last call, Judy received a collect call from James Brown in Sacramento. Had Darcy called her or come home? Judy told him no. James confessed he had no idea where she was. Initially, Judy prayed that Darcy was on her way home. Then another call came from Darcy's friend, Lily. She said Darcy had disappeared and James had been arrested for suspicion of a missing person. Judy immediately called the Sacramento PD, who had never heard of James Brown. September 4, 1987, Judy called the Kings County Department of Public Safety, which covers all the unincorporated areas of Greater Seattle, to report a missing person. Filling out the form, Darcy's history as a chronic runaway sex worker who occasionally used drugs came out, and Judy got the distinct impression that Darcy was not going to be a high priority to anyone except her. The request came, we'll need the name of her dentist, sent chills through Judy. As Darcy was still wearing a retainer soldered into place, she gave the officer the information. Oh my God, she's still wearing a retainer. This is a, still a kid. Ugh. All right, one more question. Did she have any unusual marks or scars? And Judy told them that on her right hand, my daughter is missing the tip of her four fingers above the knuckle. It's a birth defect. Ugh. So Judy asked, if she should file a report in Sacramento since Darcy was last seen there. No, no, there's no need to bother the Sacramento PD, replied the detective. No need to do that. The Darcy Frankenpole missing person report had taken about a month to reach the desk of Detective Mike Hatch, formerly of the Green River Task Force, which was trying to identify another serial killer 
who turned out to be Gary Ridgway. He had killed about 48 women from the Seattle-Tacoma area. Hatch wondered at the time if this young runaway turned sex worker was a Green River victim. When he checked in with Judy Frankenpole, he'd asked for copies of her phone records and got background on Darcy. And the file didn't move for another month. Judy was just left beside herself. If Darcy wasn't calling, either she couldn't or she was dead. The FBI profiled the I-5 killer. They wrote, The suspect is probably a white male, mid-20s to 30s, unmarried, either never married or divorced, works with his hands, is dexterous with tools, has a reason to be outdoors like a job or a hobby, end quote. The detective in the room asked, Do you have his phone number? To limited chuckling. Biondi believed that while profile research was valuable training and assisted them in keeping their eyes open, a detective had access and interacted with the crime scene itself, an advantage over profilers. This intimacy the detective had was invaluable. Old-fashioned police work was and would remain the mainstay of investigation. Yet Biondi jumped at the chance to pick the brains of the FBI profilers while they were in town instructing a two-week course for detectives in North Carolina, Kay Mulsberry included. She was learning about the organized versus disorganized killers, those who controlled and planned out their kills, versus the frenzied impulse killers. This serial killer was evolving, becoming better and better at what he was doing. While his kills were impulsive, the crimes themselves were well-planned. He had incorporated bringing nylon cord with him to use his restraints, rather than solely relying on pieces of the victim's clothing. This killer altered his method of killing. Strangulation was replaced with twisting pieces of wood into the ligature of the garage, so he could asphyxiate them more slowly, a controlled manner, rendering them unconscious and repeating the process over and over. He was extending the time taken with victims, which is risky, arrogantly believing he had all the time in the world to torture them and enjoy himself, to cut and remove their clothes, seeking to satisfy that deviant mental sexual element he had hidden away deep within his warped psyche. This killer was becoming a very effective killing machine, and he would never stop on his own. The updated profile included, he was a frequent lone traveler of major highways in the San Joaquin area, probably resided from San Joaquin to Sacramento to Lake Tahoe, but likely in a rural valley area with back roads, had owned or had access to several vehicles in recent years, has likely frequented sex worker strolls in the San Joaquin cities, had likely had a non-threatening demeanor and appearance, at first, could be the quiet guy next door, the loner type, with few close friends, living a quiet lifestyle and keeps to himself, could live alone with family, parents, brother, sister, or a wife, GB vague much, could be familiar with the difficulty law enforcement has with multi-jurisdictional investigations. FBI profiler Bill Hagmeyer and Ray Biondi agreed that new media pressure would be a good idea and more attention would mean he'd have to work harder to find victims. But once again, the man shortage would be a conundrum. Hagmeyer pointed out that the Green River Task Force had five jurisdictions 
with 40 detectives working in concert under one roof. 40? Ray Biondi was speechless and pea green with envy. Hagmeyer also pointed out that statistically, the actual body count could be three to four times greater than it was known to be. Now, it was Kay's turn to be incredulous. You mean there could be 20 bodies out there? Hagmeyer nodded. I certainly do think there could be others you haven't found. And may never. Biondi's beeper went off. A gangland murder. He sent Stan Reed and Bob Bell. Hagmeyer began asking questions about this fresh murder. Biondi suggested, hey, Hagmeyer, you want to go with them? And Bill lit up like a kid going to a baseball game. The FBI did not get to go to real crime scenes very often, which is very different from the photos and reports they regularly examine. So off they went. The next day, Malsby found a Sacramento police report on her desk sent by a friend, Bobby Armstrong, about assault on a sex worker from about three weeks back. The guy tried to handcuff her, fled, and was booked on assault. The guy was 49, 5'11", 180 pounds, brown eyes, graying hair, yada, yada, yada. And then she spies some very curious information. She called Sacramento, asking to see the evidence in their property room, ASAP. 8 a.m. the next day, Kate Malsby began examining the seized property from the sack sex worker assault, all sealed in evidence bags. Handcuffs located on the golf course parking lot, two handcuff keys which fit the cuffs, white plastic sex vibrator, battery type, scissors, six inches with blunt ends, medical type. Kate could see the remnants of tape adhering to the blades and possibly fibers stuck to the tape. Two rubber band hair ties, two pieces of wood dowling about six and a half inches, which is about 16 centimeters, and strung between them white nylon cord about a foot and a half length, which is about 32 centimeters, each looped around a dowel and knotted. Another long piece of the same cord. Stunned, she felt an icy shiver run down her back. She had seen this cord before. It was the same type found at the Lake Tahoe crime scene where the last Jane Doe was found. Hair ties. Click. He's taking ponytails as souvenirs. Kay beat feet to Ray Biondi's office to tell him about the sadistic crime kit summarizing the assault case and the physical evidence at the Jane Doe site. What was the suspect's name? asked Biondi. Kay answered, Roger Kitty. Ray's eyes widened. He's the number one on our hit parade. He sounded very calm, while inside he was screaming, Holy shit! Holy shit! Did the criteria really work? Getting the priority printout, Kay read, Kitty was a suspect in a female abduction three years ago in Contra Costa County. Biondi nodded. Yeah, Vito found that out. He thought Kibby was dirty from the get-go. They made sure to get the cordage over to Streeter in the crime law. Vito Bertaccini was frustrated. His workload prevented him from working on the Stephanie Brown and the Charmaine Sabra cases. He had tried to get surveillance on Roger Kibby. That was next. He tried to get a search warrant. That was next, too. At a detective's meeting, he asked permission to work Kitty hard because this guy was dirty. Vito just knew it. Oh, interrupted by a phone call, Vito learned of Kitty's arrest for assault and the court and God damn it, I knew 
knew he was killing women, and he went to find a deputy DA. After shampooing the crabs away for Roger, life for Harriet and him had settled into a dysfunctional malaise. Their job at the public storage facility gave them a manager's apartment. Roger hung around there doing odd jobs, day by day, sporting a new beard. They lived like platonic roommates with Roger going out nights and returning in the early a.m. and Harriet not asking about it. One day in August, he showed up with a black eye, claiming he'd gotten into the middle of a fight in an arcade. While Harriet was aware of the I-5 killer being discussed on TV, the police hadn't been back, so clearly they realized how ridiculous they were about Roger. Harriet devoured true crime books, so she was well aware that these monsters existed, just Roger wasn't one of them. So Harriet might be listening to this podcast. Hi, Harriet. Welcome. One night, Harriet did actually point-blank ask Roger, Do you know anything about these dead women? And he just answered, No. Good night. Yet something bothered Harriet, who had noticed some changes in him recently. Roger was more withdrawn than usual, at times unusually morose. It had to be the state of their marriage getting him down. Plus, finances weren't great. She was shocked that Roger had sold a custom-made $2,300 parachute rig for 800 bucks. Even though she paid the bills, she never saw a penny of that money. One August day, Roger cleared his throat and announced, quote, There will come a day when we'll park company and you'll be grateful for it. End quote. Harry asked, what do you mean by that? And he said, you'll see. The night of Roger's arrest for assault, he had announced that he was going out, and whatever, thought Harriet. The next morning, he called her from jail. What did you do to end up there? Well, I'll tell you later. Call Steve and let him know. So once again, his brother Steve, the cop, was the one that Roger ran to for help, who he confided in. Their car had also been impounded, and Harriet was pissed. They'd sold their Datsun 280Z in February 1987, because Roger thought it looked too much like the car in some of the I-5 killings. He'd put 27,196 miles on it in seven months. That's about 44,000 kilometers. Harriet, honey, that is a lot of driving, all right? I think that's weird. All right, then Steve called to fill her in on Roger's arrest. He'd been arrested for attempted rape of a prostitute. What? Harriet thought. This is the guy who wasn't interested in sex at home. So he goes out, picked up a prostitute, and tries to rape her. Harriet just began to cry. But if she left him in jail, who would help her out at the storage units? So four days later, Harriet paid the 10% of Roger's $15,000 bail. In the car ride home, the tense silence was unbearable, and she finally hissed, Can you keep that thing in your pants? Roger said nothing. For two weeks, he laid low. He never went out. He just puttered around the place. Now, Detective Steve Kibbe was receiving an award from his department. So the Kibbe family was having a special dinner. And Roger would not have missed it for the world because he and Steve were pretty close. They held opposite opinions about their mother, Lorraine, a hospital nurse who had died of cancer at age 43. Steve worshipped her memory. Roger felt she was a terror. He was her least favorite of her three sons. 
Roger recalled her anger, ridicule, always directed at him, finding fault at everything he did. Lorraine disliked his stutter, his disinterest in school, his reading problems, and just about everything else. He remembered his mother as being quick to discipline, to smack and hit him. Roger recalled being locked out of the house, naked, hiding in the bushes for hours, waiting for his dad to come home. He threatened to run away. Soon he'd take it to sneaking out and peeping in the neighbor's windows. He got sneakier, too, burglarizing homes and graduating onto stores. Kibby's son number three was Jack Jr. He worked in the aerospace industry in San Diego. And when Lorraine passed, Steve and Jack Jr. attended the funeral. Roger was in prison. That night, Roger watched as his younger brother received an Officer of the Year award as Roger was becoming the prime suspect in the I-5 murders. Back at the lab, Jim Streeter examined the cordage from the murder scene at the El Dorado's Lake Tahoe. They were similar cords to those found in Roger Kibbe's crime kit, but that was as close as any wood could say, though. Not identical. The scissors from the crime kit had tiny pieces of duct tape on them, but he was unable to match the fibers to any of the victim's clothing. Maybe they could match to a spill-to-be-found victim, which is a gruesome thought. But Streeter spent some time visiting sporting goods stores and hardware shops trying to match up the cord he was studying. He just couldn't find it anywhere. On a hunch, he stopped at the Lodi Airport. The parachute center owner recognized it, and it was used for suspension and reefing lines for the construction of parachutes. Streeter made note of it. Vito Berticini pulled the RV into the parking lot adjacent to the public storage facility, his new home for the next two weeks. Pete Rosenquist studied his kibby neighbors through binoculars, saying, I see the office and the front door. We are covered at both ends. With their radios, they checked in with Bob Bell and Harry Macon, who parked nearby, joining the Winnebago party that was being thrown by the SAC and San Joaquin Sheriff County Departments. Their surveillance team was in place watching the Kibbies until a search warrant was ready. The key new development, the nylon cords, making all the difference in getting a search warrant approved. It would take Stan Reed a week to write the affidavit, running nearly 70 pages, and a judge would need to sign off on it before it was executed. A question that they debated as they observed, if Kibbe picked up a sex worker and drove off with her, how far would they let him go? When would they stop him? Biondi clarified, you need to stop him right away. What if we're following Kibby and we lost him? We could kill someone and then that would be on us. Surveillance week number one passed with the normal routine being established. Comings, goings, showing units to potential clients, getting lunch, dinner, always with a police detail following Harriet and Roger. They noticed that wherever they went, Harriet led and Roger slunk behind. Harriet was clearly the dominant one. The phone rang for Kate just after midnight. It was a deputy notifying her that Deborah Ann Guffey had been arrested downtown. Anxious to speak to Deborah about Roger Kibbe and the assault, Kate went to the station, signed for Guffey, and drove her to the homicide bureau to interview her. It was 1.45 a.m. To Kay, she saw a gaunt, rough-looking, hollow-eyed woman who made her life as a sex worker to pay for her heroin habit. But Deborah Ann Guffey had razor-sharp recall of the attack on the golf course. Had he threatened her, 
Yeah, when he slammed my face down saying, don't struggle and you won't get hurt, cunt, in a cold and dangerous voice. It was clear to Malsby that Deborah Ann Guppy was still shaken by this, and she was a jaded veteran of the streets. She told Kay that they hadn't even gotten to the sex stuff. He hadn't even unzipped his pants when he turned on her. Ah, thought Kay. No wonder the DA hadn't filed assault with attempt to commit rape charges yet. Roger hadn't actually started the rape yet. Best they could charge him with was a misdemeanor, battery, and soliciting a prostitute, each punishable by a year in jail. Deborah nervously recounted how she figured he was going to handcuff her and drive her off someplace more private because they weren't really hidden in the golf course parking lot because a cop had found them, right? Yeah, he had. Kibby winds up pleading not guilty, and the trial had been slated for next month in Sacramento. This case was their best shot of getting him off the streets until the murder case evidence could be procured. While Deborah Ann Guffey was articulate and sincere, it took an arrest warrant to get a hold of her, even for the interview. Could they count on Deborah to show up for the trial? Operation Winnebago was proving to be a really boring detail until one day when Vito Bertaccini came barreling out of the RV, yelling at the top of his lungs, You son of a bitch! I'm gonna bust your perverted ass! Startling the crap out of everyone. Vito had seen a young man sitting in his car masturbating to the sight of women walking through the parking lot. Vito pulled the mortified young man up against the car. Zip up and get your hands up in the air. I'd shoot it off, but it's too small a target. Vito really needed to vent the frustration and to let it out. I mean, woo, this guy picked the wrong place to be doing the something something. And he turned out to be a police officer's son. Finally. Malsby, Dean, Bertaccini, Rosenquist walked into public stores with the search warrant. Thankfully, Harriet was out. The troops descended. Ferrari, Jim Watson from El Dorado PD, DOJ investigators, even Jim Streeter. And there was a recorder, a photographer who documented everything that was identified as evidence. The warrant included items that may have belonged to Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Sabra. Karen Finch, since they hadn't really known that Laura Hedick's clothes were cut yet, she wasn't included. It included everything from blood, hair, body fluids, fibers, prints, photographs, since he had asked Deborah Guffey to pose for him, bondage gear, rental records, gasoline, purchase receipts, telephone, toll calls, checkbooks, charge. I mean, it went on for six pages. And the scavenger hunt began. Uh, They found Roger had two storage lockers in his name, and they found the keys. These held videos and parachuting-related books, shoeboxes filled with receipts and tax records, wood dowlings, exactly like those found in the crime kit. In the kitchen, they found scissors, rolls of tape, not duct tape, Roger's American Parachute Association card. He was transported to the Sac County Sheriff Department, riding silently in the vehicle the whole way. Unless you are under arrest, you can refuse to go to the police station. However, since this warrant covered various bodily evidence from Roger, in this case, he could not refuse. 
Meanwhile, I'm dying here hoping they're going to connect the parachute cord and Roger's favorite hobby. Because I'm reading and I'm going, oh my god, like make this connection, make this connection. Now, unlike Roger's interview last December in 1986, Roger is not at the police station voluntarily this time. And what you see on TV about reading Miranda rights at the arrest is wrong. Miranda rights are read and are required before a suspect is questioned while in custody. And Roger said all he could give the officers was his name and address. So he had clearly not waived his Miranda rights this time. So when the officers continue to talk to him in spite of this, they know that anything he says is inadmissible in court. They know this. Now, there's merits to continuing anyway. If he happens to confess, they know they have the right guy, and now they can work on getting more evidence. If Kibby ever takes the stand, they can use what he told the detectives to structure questions around that. So anyway, they can't use his testimony against him, but they can structure questions around it. So they keep talking to Kibby, and they plan to get him talking about skydiving, and that does work. Rosenquist said he'd signed up for jump school while he was in the service, but he chickened out. And Kibby says, oh, yeah, I never served. Well, how did you start jumping? Well, he was curious. And the conversation continues for a while, and eventually they got around to, hey, Roger, ever give girls a ride or stop for a hitchhiker? And he flat out denies that. And they start increasing the pressure as they're talking to him. Did you ever, you know, do this and talk to girls in Stockton? Or tried to pick up girls in Stockton? No, no, but I wanted to. And he's stuttering. You know, that made it just too hard. But then his story changes a little. Where Roger says, well, yeah, I did actually talk to them. But they thought he looked like a cop, so they just left. Hmm. When they asked him about his marriage, though, he just froze. So that is evidently a very touchy subject for Roger. Was he viewing Harriet as his mommy, I wonder? I think he has some real mommy issues here. So ultimately, though, they wind up taking him to the clinic next to the jail where they got hair, saliva, and blood samples. They made sure no one had any hard feelings. And Roger agreed that there weren't. But he said, hey, listen, my brother told me not to take a polygraph. So that's where they left that. Carolyn Jean Redman was a pretty 25-year-old brunette, long hair, clear blue eyes, that shot up in surprise when Detective Pete Rosenquist came by and was asking her about her father, Roger Kibbe. She said she hadn't talked to her dad in years. Her parents divorced before she was two years old. What a shock this had to be for her, this poor woman. Pete wanted background information, so Carolyn shared some stories that her mom, Margie, had told her. Like her dad never paid child support, never really kept in touch with them. When Carolyn had gotten older, she had written him, but Roger had never responded. Had she seen him at all when she was growing up? Yes, she saw him when she was 13. She and mom had flown to San Diego to visit her grandparents, and her father had stopped in for a visit. When she was 17, she saw him again just after she'd had a baby. She had stayed with Harry and him for a month or so, and he had been very attentive to his first grandchild. What did Karen think of the Kibby marriage? Well, they, you know, seemed to have a crisis every week, but they generally seemed to get along. Harry was really uptight, while Dad was the quiet one. Did she have any memories of him abusing her? 
No, she didn't remember anything like that. And in fact, this was the first negative thing that she'd heard he had done assaulting a sex worker. Well, after digging and digging for weeks, Vito managed to find the 1979 missing persons case that Harry had alluded to when Roger first came in for questioning. Lou Ellen Burley, a pretty 21-year-old with mid-length hair, hazel eyes, had disappeared September 11, 1977, from a shopping center in Walnut Creek. Detective Jerry Whiting remembered the case and remembered Roger Reese Kibbe. Llewellyn was a student at the local secretarial college looking for a job, and John Brown, who claimed to work for the Helena Rubenstein Company, was hiring. Llewellyn's job interview was at a new office building currently under construction. She was met by John Brown, graying hair, and missing several front teeth. Since the office wasn't finished yet, he'd have to interview her in his van. Several construction workers saw them get into this multicolored van. Brown and Llewellyn talked for about 30 minutes, with him asking Burley to return the next day to fill out some forms. Only on Sunday, there's no construction crew present and no other witnesses. Her boyfriend later reported Llewellyn missing. Her car was found in the parking lot. He told Detective Whiting that she had had some reservations about going back. The interviewer had made her uncomfortable. But since things had gone okay Saturday, she ignored her misgivings and returned on Sunday, never to be seen again. Murder bookies, trust your gut. Please trust those butterflies. Just listen to your gut. If something makes you feel uneasy, don't do it. Don't do it. Whiting told Bertaccini about a month later, a Pittsburgh detective had called about a case. A sex worker had been roughed up by a John in a multicolored van, and she had jotted down his license plate number. She gave the police the license plate, and guess who it matched? The burly suspect and his van, Roger Kibbe. The problem was the eyewitnesses couldn't positively identify him. And a missing person's case isn't a homicide. The Pittsburgh sex worker who tied Burley to Kibby and his van was Gina Riley. Gina had received a phone call in response to a personal ad she had placed, and she met with the man outside the Black Angus restaurant on October 7, 1977. The guy wanted a date, and he would pay $200 for sex and wanted to take a drive out into the country. Apprehensive, Gina doubled the price and asked to see his ID. She remembered he was born in 1939, the same year as Roger Kibbe. She recalled his name began with an R something like Richard, and the last name had a double E sound. They drove out quite a ways near a small airport, maybe one a parachutist might be familiar with. Richard double E walked her across a dark field, and she started feeling alarmed. Saying she was cold, Gina asked to go back to the van. They did, had sex, and they drove around some more. Reminds me of our Roger and the joy rides he likes to take. Anyway, Richard Double E wanted sex again and convinced Riley. Now realizing it's close to 3.30 a.m., Gina says she has to get back. So he drives around a little bit until he notices a house up on the hill, saying, oh, you know, my sisters live up there. And when Gina refused to get out of the vehicle, he pulled a knife and stuck it to her throat and ordered her out. 
Now she switches to being totally submissive, telling him there's no need for a knife, she'll do whatever he wants, and she knows that he's a nice guy. And he yelled, I'm a fucking asshole, and repeated it several times. Having been in tight situations before, Gina stayed cool and calm. He asked her, aren't you scared? And she said, no, I know you're a good guy and you won't hurt me. He then removed the knife, took her back to the van, and then to the Black Angus. Gina got his license plate before he left. As Kibby had no sexual priors, Gina declined to press charges. I think if Gina went tough on him, talked back, or resisted, I think she'd have been killed. I think in his warped mind, her being submissive, it didn't get him the excitement that he needed. Just my opinion. Now, to the police, Kibby denied any involvement with Burley or Riley, even though Gina had given them his license plate. They searched his van and nothing was found. Bertaccini wondered how many other women had gone missing after crossing this path over the years. Even after they took down his license plate, the witnesses couldn't positively identify him. So frustrating. And Roger is particularly good at not leaving incriminating evidence behind. Plus, he's rendering the police impotent by crossing these jurisdictional lines, and it's happening too many times to just be a coincidence. Have you picked up on this from listening to Cop Brother talking more stories from work? Am I channeling Nancy Grace? Hmm. All right, at the same time Pete Rosenquist was talking to Kibby's daughter, Vito and Larry Ferrari are walking into the California Rehabilitation Center at Norco. It's a state prison. During the search, detectives had found an envelope addressed to Roger and Harriet Kibby. And it was revealed that Helen Purcell was Harriet's older sister. Helen greeted the detectives with a warm smile that put people at ease. She was 48, blonde, light-complected, married with three kids. She was in jail for 18 months for theft. Her daughter was an Alameda County Sheriff deputy married to another deputy. Thanksgiving must be a hoot. That is all I am saying. So Helen filled them in on Harriet and Roger's former furniture warehouse business, the one that went under in spring 1986. Then they wound up working at public storage. What did Helen think of Roger? Well, unlike Harriet's previous three macho ex-husbands, Roger doesn't drink, and she didn't think he was capable of hurting anybody. Huh. Well, you should tell that to the prostitute he assaulted last month, Bertaccini told her. And Helen's eyes widened. Well, that's a side of him I've never seen. Well, does Harriet dominate Roger? Oh, without question. Uh, do they argue? Well, Harriet's anger is extremely explosive but short-lived. And I've never heard Roger arguing anyway with Harriet. He'd just leave instead. At least two or three times a year, he'd wind up at Steve's. Would he stop for a stranded motorist? Oh, no, no. He's not the type to get involved. Uh, Helen did offer this much insight, though. Roger Kibbe is so quiet, you don't know what he's thinking. Hmm. Yeah, he's one of the quiet types that hides it very well and deep. So Bertaccini and Ferrari head out to Chula Vista to track down more background on Kibbe. On the phone, they had been told that they had absolutely nothing on him. In person, file clerk found 41 pages of microfiche on the minor child, Roger Kibbe. Lesson learned. Always ask in person. 
Some information was dated July 17, 1954. Address 545 Castleman, age 15. Theft of clothes from a clothesline. Juvie officer Leo Kelly went to the Kibbe's house. Son Roger admits the theft, has been stealing women's clothes and undies for a year, hands a box to Kelly, the clothes inside are all cut up. Bertaccini nearly caused an accident pulling the car over so he could read the report himself. Cutting up women's clothes was a ritual for Kibbe at 15 years old. 35 years later, he's still at it. Only now, the women are wearing the clothes he cuts. Jack Sr., Kibby, 73 years old, tall, craggy, hunched over, told Vito and Larry that Roger had been in trouble most of his life. He told them his mother, Lorraine, who was a nurse, didn't like Roger much and was a terrible influence on his life. Just her presence would scare Roger. She beat him something terrible before Jack got out of the Navy. Once during World War II, when Roger was about six years old, Jack came home on leave. As he walked toward the house, Roger looked up and said, Are you my dad? It really shook Jack up. A week later, driving around, Roger pointed out, Oh, that's where we pick up Uncle Howard. And it dawned on Jack Sr. what had been going on. But truth was, Jack didn't want some other guys raising his kid, so he stayed with Lorraine. He'd intervened between mother and son when he could, but life in the Navy meant he was gone a lot. In school, Roger was a slow reader, teased mercilessly as he stuttered, and called dumbbell. In high school, Roger got up, got dressed, and headed out the door every day. And it wasn't until parent-teacher conferences that Jack and Lorraine learned he never actually went to school, and he dropped out his junior year. Now, Roger was not without talent. In woodworking and drawing, he was amazing. Once he drawn a sketch of a building, and Jack was really impressed. It was really, really good. But then Lorraine came home and berated Roger for making a mess. So I really feel for the child that Roger was. Jack did the best he could. He used to take the boys camping, and Roger loved this. Now, recently, Jack had been with the family when Steve got his award. And he said he believed that marrying Harriet was the worst thing in the world that had happened to Roger because she was domineering and mean, blaming him for everything that went wrong. And, gee, Jack, don't hold back, but that sounds a lot like Lorraine. And that was the interview with Dad. They also spoke with the youngest Kibbe brother, Jack Jr. from San Diego. He operated assembly machines for War Industries, which was the largest employer in Chula Vista. Happily married, father of two, he called Roger a kleptomaniac who would just steal to steal. They had grown up with no discipline. They would all come and go as they pleased. Jack Jr. described Roger as calm, quiet, slow-moving guy with a weak stomach who cannot stand the sight of blood. Once, after visiting them, the day he left to return home, Roger sent flowers to Jack Jr.'s daughter, Denise. He really saw his brother as a good guy. The detectives also went to speak to former Chula Vista juvenile officer Leo Kelly, who definitely recalled 15-year-old Roger Kibbe, that he had tried to get him help, got him some psychiatric counseling, as you may remember from last episode. Learning Roger was a suspect in a young woman's disappearance and murder, Leo said, sadly, 
Oh, that's the type of thing I feared might happen, even as a youngster. But the time to help Roger Kibbe has long passed. Kelly confirmed that Kibbe was a habitual truant, and he suggested that they speak to the juvenile officer who took over after Kelly had left, Jack Dowell. Dow remembered Roger Kibbe for cutting women's clothes to pieces, too. But two other incidents really stuck in Dow's mind. Roger was found in a garage of a vacant home. He claimed to have been kidnapped, brought there, tied up, and molested by unknown assailants. He was tied up with women's clothes, slips, bras. Obviously, he tied himself up in some kind of sexual fantasy. Dal got the impression he didn't like women and was acting out something. Well, my, my, my. Overtones of serial killer BTK, Dennis Rader. He tied himself up in his victim's women's clothing, too. And Kibby did that twice that we know of. The report also had some insights into Roger's life in the 70s when he was in his 30s. His mother had died in 1963, so he was living with his father and stepmother, Susan, and he loathed Susan, but he got on well with his dad. More mommy issues. In August 61, Roger married Marjorie House in the First Presbyterian Church in Chula Vista, the marriage lasting 18 months, and Carolyn was born. Now, in the 70s, Roger was a certified welder, but he was fired for theft and had been unemployed for, for quite some time. He was arrested over 20 times for burglary, grand theft, receiving stolen property, being in and out of jail. For whatever reason, Roger was unusually chatty that day that he was speaking with A.G. von Reisten, a polygraph expert. Reisten examined his history from childhood into adulthood and noted a pattern of reaction to stress emerging. Roger hurt no one thus far. But with that last, he strongly recommended psychiatric intervention as Roger was one of the most dangerous men he had ever encountered. It is not inconceivable that he could take a life in the future. Oh my God, this guy is like a prophet. I wish everyone had listened to him. Next, Kay went on to interview the brother, Detective Steve Kibbe. Now, this would be a tough one to straddle, sharing just enough information with him about Roger, but not telling him too many details either. She began with an honest statement, quote, If my brother was a murder suspect, I'd very much appreciate the detectives sitting down and telling me what they had, and that's why I'm here today, end quote. Steve seriously doubted his brother was a murderer, after all, he'd known Roger for 47 years longer than she had. He updated Kay. Roger and Harriet had been at each other's throats since the search warrant was served. Roger had called him on the verge of suicide, and they were fired and evicted from public storage, too. Harriet had driven Roger up to a friend's cabin outside Placerville and had left him there with no phone, no car, Law enforcement knew this, okay, so they had been surveilling the cabin the whole time that Roger was there. So Kay began with a cautious recitation of why Roger was the prime suspect in the homicides. A concerned Steve gave Kay the dates that Roger had visited him, which did not match up with any known abduction dates. And by the end of the conversation, Steve had not offered any further assistance to help them get to the bottom of this, to Kay's dismay. 
Steve Kibbe was really stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I do not envy him. November 20th, 1987. In the People of the State of California versus Roger Kibbe, the 31-year-old prosecutor, Jean McCullough, knew she had to win this case because failing would put a probable serial killer back on the street before they had the evidence to arrest him for murder. McCullough had only been in the DA's office for eight months and had handled jury trials for less time than that. The pressure was real. Highly motivated, McCullough fought for a conscientious jury who would not be put off by Deborah Guffey's occupation as a sex worker and continued to battle the defense over every little issue. Now, McCullough asked Deborah Ann Guffey, what happened next? Under oath, Deborah told the jury, I knew I was going to die and I started fighting, and then acted out how she viciously fought to free herself from Roger Kibbe's grip that night in the golf course parking lot. Could she ID the man who had attacked her? Guffey pointed to Kibbe with a steady hand. She effectively described the attack, the police car showing up, Roger pushing her out of the car, him speeding away, Deborah running after the police cruiser as it chased the white car, and seeing her assailant in the back of the police car a few blocks away. She came across as a very credible witness. Sergeant Charles Colfelt's testimony supported Deborah's, as did Officer Robert Gillis, who found Kibbe's crime kit. The final witness, Penny Hummel, a civilian identification technician, matched the latent print on the handcuff to Roger Kibbe. The defense opted not to call Roger as a witness. On November 25, 1987, the jury returned with a verdict. Guilty of battery, guilty of soliciting prostitution, not guilty of false imprisonment. Roger was taken into custody immediately. An alleged serial killer was off the streets for eight months, five months if he got out for good behavior. The clock was ticking on the I-5 murder case. Weeks later, Kay spoke with Deborah Duffy. Do you know how the trial turned out? Deborah did not. No one had notified her. When Kay told her he was convicted, she was shocked. Deborah had not believed that 12 citizens could possibly believe her, on the lowest rung of society, that she had been a victim. Her testimony had put him in jail. Deborah asked Kay to call her mom because she had been really worried about Deborah testifying, and Kay made that call. Kay did not say it to Deborah Guffey then, but as the witness who survived, her testimony would be really important at the murder trial if they could get the evidence to have one. She did not want to burden the woman with that just now. Let her enjoy the win. Malsby went back to the office, back to work the evidence. By now, she had an office cubicle. She had her own desk, a phone, a car. It was like she was a big grown-up detective. She and Jim Streeter went to review everything they had on I-5. And when they got to Laura Hedick, the only victim whose clothes had not been non-functionally cut, Malsby noticed that a pink tank top was mentioned, had been wrapped around the neck, but was nowhere in evidence. Literally. Ha 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 All right, she had called the county crime lab. Nothing. And she called the coroner. Nothing. She reviewed the paperwork again. It had to be at the crime lab. So calling again, they began to hunt. And sure enough, Mark Ligature 
was the pink tank top found in the freezer, and she placed it in Jim Streeter's hands for analysis. Kay then went about reviewing the Kibbe's home movies confiscated in the search of his home. Eleven movies dating back from 1976 to 1978. Grainy, black and white, showing a younger-looking Roger Kibbe at family outings and more dramatic footage of skydiving. There were also porn films, heterosexual, engaged in various sex acts, and the only thing Kay noted was women had long hair and large breasts, the same as the victims. Malsby returned to Streeter at the lab. The stench of decomp was overwhelming from the clothing of murdered women. He had been inundated with dozens of unsolved cases sent in by a number of departments, all requesting he review the evidence for possible linkage to the I-5 killings. He'd also evaluated the dowling from the crime kit. It was the same color and diameter as the ones from the Jane Doe crime scene but that was not specific enough to matter in court. Though, he did have good news. Laura Hedick's tank top was cut, and not by the pathologist. Non-functional cutting. Snap. So, 1987 was coming to a close. In December was the DOJ high-level meeting with six agencies on the I-5 series, with criminalist Jim Streeter presenting He used photos to explain the similarities to the murders of the seven young women, including Hedick. Brown, Sabraw, Finch, Eldorado's two Jane Doe's, and Streeter had found two other similar cases. These were an unidentified Lake Tahoe woman in her 20s, dead 6 to 12 months, found nude from the waist up in Eldorado Levine off Highway 50, who had died from neck trauma, being too decomposed to be able to say strangulation, and an unidentified black woman, about 26 years old, found in Nevada's Virginia City Highlands, 30 miles or 48 kilometers from Lake Tahoe, dead for several months, her skeletal remains scattered by animal activity. Her clothes showed extensive non-functional cutting. The question and answer that followed ranged from mild support to blatant skepticism. And you will not believe it. The biggest skeptic was San Joaquin's county sheriff, who is Vito Bertaccini's boss, who asked, quote, how do we know these cases are linked? End quote. Murder bookies, can you explain it to him? Because I bet you can. Exuding patience, Biondi explained to him again, slowly this time. The big decision that came out of this hush-hush conference was that it was still too premature to go public that the seven cases were linked, but if the press were to inquire about any of them, certain information would be given out, including that there were similarities, but without discussing the similarities, and that each department could discuss their own cases, but not the others. Got it? I don't know what you can say and you can't say. Well, but. Okay, circling back to Judy Frankenpaul. All right, she had a mother's intuition and she just knew that Darcy was dead. Seattle detective Mike Hatch received a call from Darcy's friend, Kim Quackenbush. And she told him the last time that she has seen Darcy was in Sacramento. And she'd been wearing a pink dress, pink pumps, and a black chiffon jacket. He made note of it. 
And he called Sacramento PD, looking for any records on Darcy, coming up with Zip. He spoke to Homicide, and they had no victims that matched Darcy's description. He called the coroner's office, speaking with Laura Seinhost, and Hatch told her that Darcy was missing the four ends of her fingers on her right hand. No, they had nothing like that. On December 8th, Hatch went to his personal dentist, and oh, while he was there, he asked the receptionist to run next door to another dental office and pick up Darcy's dental records for him, which had been ready for three months since September. Hatch finally sent these dental records to the Washington State Kings County Medical Examiner Office, where they were entered into the National Crime Information Center's missing person system. Nothing was found. And on Christmas Eve, he called Judy Frankenpaul. She curtly told him, no, I haven't heard from Darcy. She was really angry because he wasn't listening to her. Darcy always checked in, and she hadn't been checking in, which is why she filed the missing persons case. Detective Hatch told her he was deactivating the case. Huh? Since Darcy had disappeared in Sacramento, he suggested that she file a missing persons report there. And Judy just lost her freaking mind. Remember, she had asked if she should do that four months ago, and had been told no. Hatch offered to give her the phone number, and she shouted at him, Merry fucking Christmas to you, asshole. Why would you call a mother on Christmas Eve and tell her that? I I know they're busy, but man, the sensitivity chip is just not there. But Bertaccini was elated. He had located Rogers 280Z, and the new owner was cooperative and let them take it into the crime lab and go over the car molecule by molecule, trunk to wheel well, and they found not a darn thing to tie anything to the victims and Roger Kibbe. What the hell? All right, would nothing go their way? Time is ticking. Ugh. So, two weeks after the secret deal to not publicly discuss the links between the seven women in this murder series, Sac County Sheriff Glenn Craig and Lieutenant Ray Biondi addressed the media their way, just letting it all roll out, discussing the case linkage, cases from other jurisdictions, and they blew up the whole agreement. And I cheered loud while I was reading this part. Thank you, Bruce Henderson. Sheriff Craig and Biondi decided to do this because it was simply time for the other departments to get off their asses and do something to stop the killer and stop making excuses. What they did not say to anyone was that the prime suspect was behind bars, at least for now. Detective Mike Hatch knocks at Judy Frankenpole's door. He is here to tell her that her daughter's body has been found. Of course, Judy breaks down. She had done as he had asked. She filled out the missing persons report on Christmas Eve when she was so angry. No one seemed to care about her teenage daughter except her. But knowing that Darcy had been murdered, Judy just went numb. Judy met with Detective Kate Molsby and Detective Jim Watson and she learned that Darcy was found in Lake Tahoe with no ID. 
Her pimp, James Brown, had already been eliminated as a suspect. Watson explained that there had been many missteps in failing to identify Darcy. Kings County Medical Examiner had received her dental records on January 11, 1988, 110 days after they were prepared. That same day, the GOJ technicians noted the missing girl had deformed fingers, matched her to El Dorado's Jane Doe. The same day, Judy also learned that Darcy had been buried just after Thanksgiving. They had actually held on to Darcy longer than usual. Because she'd been well-fed and had good dental care, clearly she belonged to someone. And Judy sadly remarked, yes, she does. What would happen next would change the whole investigation. Faye Springer joined the DOJ SAC lab in January 1988. Jim Streeter did a happy dance. A trace evidence specialist, Faye was a legend who worked magic with her microscope. Criminology divided into three specialties. Jim Streeter's serology, ballistics, the analysis of firearms and ammo and stuff like that, and then third, Kay's mystical realm, Trace evidence, named for all the tiny things you cannot see with the naked eye, but believe in anyway. Streeter knew that DNA, fingerprinting, blood typing, this was not going to solve the I-5 case. With Faye Springer on staff, maybe trace evidence could be the solution. Pale woman, about 5'4", brown hair, not brown eyes, she had worked the Hillside Strangler case, trash bag murder case freeway killer case. She had not wanted another serial case, but fate intervened. Jim placed a tape lift from I-5 under Faye's microscope, hoping to suck her in, and it worked. Faye Springer knew it was selecting the right evidence to delve into that was the critical part of her investigation. There could literally be thousands of fibers, hair, and debris picked up by the tape lifts. She inventoried everything from the victims, grouping these materials into broad categories that were later narrowed down. Next, she compared these findings with anything they had from their suspect in his environment, seeking an exchange of evidence and overlap. When something caught her eye, she used a tungsten needle and tweezers to remove fibers and slip it under its own microscope, increasing the power setting accordingly. Three weeks in, she was examining tape lifts from Darcy Frankenpole's dress, and she asked Streeter about Kibby's car, the white Hyundai. Do you remember the interior carpet? Was it blue? she asked. Yeah, yeah, it was blue. I thought so, said Springer. She had a match. She explained, the Hyundai carpet matte fibers were the same color, shape, and type as found on Darcy's dress, but there was something else. They all had the same dark particles shaped like footballs on them, making the match identification stronger. But what are these footballs? Tick, tick, tick. Two weeks before Roger Kibbe was due to be released from jail, Springer had toured several of the I-5 crime scenes to see them firsthand. She collected dirt, plant particles, anything relevant. Faye was assigned to the I-5 investigation full-time, focusing on the Darcy Frank and Paul murder. Back at the lab, Beyond the Amalsby waited for the update. 
Faye noted red specks on some of the fibers on the Frankenpole dress. This exciting news came next. As Malsby looked through the microscope, seeing a bunch of gobbledygook with red spots, Kay explained that this was a piece of cordage, and those red globs resulted from spray paint. And then she moved to another petri dish, gesturing to look. Biondi did say, more red paint? Faye explained it was not just red paint. She'd use a super expensive microscope determining that the particles were identical in both organic and inorganic composition. All the cords were in the same environment when someone was spraying red paint. It's the same identical paint on all the cordage. Elation broke out. Cordage from the murder scene and Kibby's residence had been in the same place at the same time, and it also tied into Deborah Ann Guffey, too. Biondi went over to the DA to file charges, a light spring in his step. It was April 17, 1988, D-Day for the I-5 investigation. A green-complected Vito Bertaccini grimaced at the single-engine plane that he was expected to climb in with Pete Rosenquist to fly to Fallon, Nevada, where Steve Kibbe was attending cop school. With Roger's arrest imminent, maybe Steve would open up about Roger? The pilot was glancing through a book titled Learning How to Fly a Cessna 172. Vito felt woozy, nearly fainting. The pilot explained that this wasn't his plane, but his friend's, which I'm sure made it so much better for Vito. While similar Cessnas, he just needed to double-check a few things. Bertaccini whispered, We're in a stolen plane. Over beautiful Lake Tahoe, Bertaccini saw a red light had come on. Breathing rapidly, he found the owner's manual, hand-shaking, finding the emergency procedures for the electrical system, reading aloud, as Pete and the pilot laughed their heads off as the manual was hurled at them. The red light stayed on the rest of the flight, and the pilot explained it would be a steep landing at Fallon, Nevada, because it was surrounded by restricted military airspace. Vito shook his head in utter disbelief as they corkscrewed down to the runway. Back to Earth once more, Vito cursed, swearing he'd drive back, threatening to arrest them both for plane theft, fist in the air. Fun fact! About 33-40% to 40% of people have some anxiety when flying. It's called aviophobia. And those that do, about 3-5% of the sufferers have this crippling anxiety that can be classified as a clinical phobia. And Vito, I think you might be one of them. This fear usually kicks in about the age 27 and it can be overcome. It was the day before Roger Kibbe was to be released from jail. 16 months after he had first been brought in for questioning in the I-5 murders, that Kay Malsby, Jim Watson, arrived at jail to arrest Kibby. They snapped the cuffs on him. At SAC Homicide Bureau, Kibby was read his Miranda rights, and he did not waive them. Kibby wanted to talk to Harriet and get their lawyer's number. He was refused. They continued to question him anyway, knowing his response would be inadmissible in court. We know this. Roger remained unwilling to speak. Malsby offered Steve Kibbe as a second choice to Harriet, with Kibbe agreeing to speak with Steve. With Kay present, the brothers began to speak on the phone, and Steve put it plainly, quote, 
I'm going to ask you one more time. Don't fuck with me, Roger. Tell me straight up. You don't have to tell her what we're talking about. Just talk to me. I got to know. End quote. I know what you're going to say. Steve again. Just answer me, yes or no. Don't screw with me, Roger. No matter how bad it is, I've got to know. Okay, the answer is no. Steve again. I've seen the reports, Roger, and I've seen the evidence. I'll support you no matter what. We're still family. Steve went on to speak cryptically to Roger about not taking the easy way out. One can infer he's talking about suicide. He ends the call with, quote, Don't let me down, Roger. I love you. End quote. After the flight to see Steve, when Vito and Pete advised him of Roger's imminent arrest, he hadn't acted surprised. Bruce Henderson believes that Steve harbored his own suspicions. Steve insisted that he'd already asked Roger, who never initiated a fight, never provoked anyone, and he'd denied killing anyone. They asked Steve if he knew about 15-year-old Roger stealing women's clothes and cutting them up. It was Steve's turn to deny knowing anything. Did he recall Roger's black eye last year? He did. It was given to him by Darcy Frankenpole. When they told Steve about the cordage and fiber, Steve appeared to at least begin to accept the unthinkable. Steve suggested that Kay's Walsby listening may have cramped Roger's ability to be honest with them, so they tried it again, confirming they were alone this time. Although it's being recorded, Roger asked Steve what they had on him. Steve told him the physical evidence was enough to convict him, and Roger began weeping. Steve explained that he needed Roger to be straight with him. Roger never was. Steve Kivy took a leave of absence from work. Four detectives spoke with Roger, trying to get him to talk using every tactic that they had learned in their collective years conducting interrogations. Kivy adamantly refused to say anything of substance until he spoke to Harriet. Round and around and around they went in this scandal. So they made a deal. Roger would tell them everything about the rapes, the killings, everything, after he'd spoken with Harriet. When they had his word on it, Roger promised, you have my word, they double-checked, and you can give us the personal property of these women, referring to the IDs and the purses of the victims, which had never been found, along with Charmaine Chabra's missing jewelry. Roger swore he would. Hours later, they finally let him speak to Harriet in the back of an unmarked police car. She was overwhelmed, upset, exhausted, angry. What a fool she had been to think things would be normal when Roger got out of jail. She had intended to give the marriage another try and was counting the days until he would be home. They had just celebrated their 13th wedding anniversary. Handcuffs removed, Roger clasped Harriet's hands and proceeded to spill his guts. All of it. Names, places, how. He was crying his eyes out, and Harriet was silent and limp. She had believed him through it all, believed his lies, believed him about the prostitute. She felt like a fool. Her husband was a killer. And then Roger reneged on it all, telling the police nothing. Stan Reed did a slow burn, furious at himself, cursing that they screwed up horribly by not putting a recorder in the card with kibbies. Roger refused to budge. I don't know anything. And in the wee hours of April 18, 1988, Roger Kibbe was booked into the El Dorado County Jail for the murder of Darcy Frankel. 
Harriet drove to the landfill, not far from the cabin she had just cleaned out. Roger had confessed all, and she appreciated the truth, but had many questions. Her worst fear was that she had done this to him, that he'd become who he was because of her. Clearly, Harriet had failed him as a wife. When did things go wrong? To communicate, they used cues and gestures. How had he killed them? He pointed to his calf, meaning nylons. How did you take them such a long way in the car? Tied and gagged them. She realized he'd given the maverick away because it might link him to a murder, and he'd used her Hyundai to kill. Between them, they kept it detached, keeping exchanges to small doses. And then he asked her to do something for him. Harriet pulled up next to the huge mountain of garbage, backing up as close as possible and popped the lid. She unloaded quickly. First, she had cleaned out the cabin, then the storage space in Rancho Cordova, 20 miles or 32 kilometers east of San Francisco. It hadn't been searched by the police because they didn't know it existed. Roger had asked her to get rid of a red pouch, and she found it right where he said it would be. In it was a solitary diamond ring, about a half carat. He told her he'd stolen it from a neighbor of theirs. Was that the truth? She threw it as hard as she could into the trash heap. I believe that's part of the missing jewelry, taken as a souvenir. His favorite gray sneakers were in the camper shell, located not far from the camper where Harriet had dumped Roger when she lost her mind after the search warrant. The cabin had been searched by the police, but they'd missed the camper shell. Harriet noticed that they had some red spots on them. Blood? Paint? Harriet didn't want to know, but she heaved them as far as she could throw them too. Tampering with evidence, Harriet? Really? 1991. Roger's trial for being the I-5 Strangler was about to begin. Harriet hadn't seen Roger in about two years. For the first eight months, she'd come to visit almost weekly. Their unspoken deal, his information in exchange for her presence. What about the black eye? Darcy Frankenpole kicked him. What about when he had the crabs? Got them from a victim he picked up after he'd left home in December 1986, ending up in Vegas and then at Steve's. He dumped her in El Dorado. This one hadn't been discovered yet. When Harriet ran out of questions, she was done and stopped visiting. She'd only returned now because Roger had asked to see her before the trial began. After being subpoenaed by the DA about a month earlier, she had declared spousal immunity. She refused to answer any questions, whether being from the prosecution or the defense. Quietly, Harriet assured the prosecution, if they couldn't make the case, she would assist. During all their talks, Roger had never, not once, shown one ounce of remorse for his victims or their families. She knew Roger would kill again if he ever got out. He needed to be behind bars. She had come a long way in two years. Thank God, Harriet, you really had me worried there for a bit. She realized her husband asked to see her to give her papers so that Steve could dispose of his body. Roger planned to commit suicide before the trial. She frowned. Coward. I'm thinking you should face the music, she told him. Harriet knew that while they had made a mess of her marriage, she had no blame in his serial murders. Factors way out of her control had conspired to create that outcome, a combination of genetics, environment, and psychology. The unanswered question that remained was, why? And she seized the moment, quote, Have you given any thought to what this was all about? No response. 
Do you think this was about your mother? Do you think that maybe you've been trying to kill her all this time? If that's the case, look where it's gotten you 30, 40 years later. I mean, here you are talking about killing yourself. Haven't you destroyed enough lives to get back at her? His stare was icy cold. No. And that concludes episode 28, Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson, part 2. And there's more, so much more. Join us next time for Second Cast, Trace Evidence, Monsters Are a Trial, where we will follow Bruce Henderson through the People vs. Roger, Reese Kibbe, and the role that Trace Evidence will play. What are those little footballs? Follow me as I update the Kibbe victim list, Roger's fate, and delve into the cold cases and paths not taken. Source material and snack and drink information for the Trace Evans Trilogy are found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Murder Bookies, our next book is The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of an Abusive Husband by Gary Sosnecki. He is the great-grandson of victim Cecilia Ludwig, who was horribly murdered back in 1906. When wife killing was an all-too-commonly-used term, you will be engaged by his search for the truth, and you'll hear from Mr. Sisnecki himself. Thank you so much. Please leave a coveted five-star review. It really helps to reach new murder bookies and grow the podcast. And reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Cuddle up a little closer, love Love me.